Amen. Well, we're in week four this week of our summer in the Psalms. We just kind of uh, take the summer and, and go through the Psalms and just really, really try and get uh, from God. What, what can we learn from the Psalms? How can God teach us through the Psalms? The Psalms are, are oftentimes just kind of skimmed through, right? It's just kind of the poetry that God gave us in the middle of the Bible, and so we just kind of skim through it. We don't really spend time digging into what it is and, and what the author is actually saying, and so we're spending this summer really focusing on the Psalms and really trying to dig deep into, into a few of them. We're going we're gonna to go for probably six or seven more weeks here and just, just looking at the Psalms, and so far we've been uh, in Psalm 56, as David writes, as, being, as he's being chased by King Saul trying to kill him, and he says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, and God whose word I praise. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. And so we talked about when we're alone, or when we're afraid, or when we're feeling opposed, or when we're feeling overwhelmed, that we can trust in this God, and we can trust in his word, and that was Psalm 56. Psalm 51 was the next week, and and really in Psalm 51, we catch a glimpse of the gospel, the gospel that, that sin is serious, but God is gracious, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, we'll, and, he, and we can be reconciled to him and we can be restored to him. Last week, we looked at Psalm 84. And 84 was just about just this desire to be in the presence of God and, and, and how we are the temple. You and I are the temple. And we, every single day, every single minute, are in the presence of God. And so that changes the way that we live. It changes the way that we speak and act, and it changes the way we interact with other people. I love Psalm 84, but today uh, we're going to camp out in a special psalm to me. This is one of my favorite psalms, um, and, and we'll get there. We're going to get to Psalm 95. That's where we're going to be. But I want to start this morning just by asking a question. And the question is this. Do we realize what we're doing here? Do we realize what we do when we come to this place on the weekends? Do we realize what we do when what is happening in this place each and every weekend? I think there is a, there is a wonder and there is a weight to what happens here each and every time we gather together for worship. And sometimes I think it, we, can, we can lose that. We can lose the wonder and lose the, the weight of what's going on here. It's possible to come and to go through the motions and not even realize what is going on. So the question is, do we even, do, do we know what is happening in this moment right now? Do we understand what happens when we come to worship? I, I wanna, we're going to be in Psalm 95. We'll get there in a little bit if you want to just mark that. But we're, I want to start this morning in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. And because what's happening here today goes back a really long way, like to the very beginning of, of things, to the very beginning of God gathering his people. And so Exodus chapter 19, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, if you're curious, Exodus chapter 19. And like I said, what is happening here goes way back. You'll remember that there's the, the people of God are slaves in Egypt. By Exodus 19, they're already out, but the people of God have been enslaved by the Egyptians. And, and you, you understand that God has delivered them from this slavery, but he did so for a purpose. When God was explaining to Moses and Aaron and, and just saying, this is what you should say to Pharaoh, here's what he says in, in chapter 4. He says, release my son. He's talking about Israel as his son, so that he may worship me. 
You get to chapter 5, and, and, and they go to Pharaoh, and, and Aaron and Moses say, let us go so that we might go and hold a festival for our God, that we might go and worship. There was a purpose to the freedom that comes from God, and this is exactly what happens. The people of God, Israel, are, are released. They are freed from the Egyptians. They are freed from the slavery. God delivers his people, and he gathers them at Mount Sinai, and they are gathered there to worship. And so Exodus chapter 19 gives us just a glimpse of, of what this worship looked like. And starting in verse 16, it says this. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the, cram- everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Like, wow. I mean, can you imagine this? This is the gathering that God brought them out of Egypt for. This is, they came out of Egypt to worship God, and they begin to worship God, and the mountains are trembling, and the people are trembling. There's thunder, and there's lightning, and there is the voice of God. And what a, what a powerful picture this is. And, and this, is, this is kind of a common occurrence in the Old Testament that God meets with his people as they come to worship him. And it's not always in thunder. It's not, there's not always fire. There's not always, the mountains aren't always trembling, right? But, but the people of God are, are, are constantly worshiping together. You get the story of the Old Testament. They worship together, they're good with God, and then they kind of fall away for a while, and then they come back and they're good with God, and they, they worship, and then they fall away for a while, and they come back and they're good with God. One of these stories is in the book of Nehemiah, and in Nehemiah, the Ezra opens up the Scripture. In, in chapter 8, he opens up the Scripture. He stands up and he opens it up, and all of the people, they stand up with him. And they're shouting, Amen. Amen. And then they fall on their faces in worship. Right, this, is, this is the picture of the Old Testament church, the Old Testament gathering of, of God, the people of God. They would come and they would worship and they would come. And, and we have these images scattered through the Old Testament of the people of God gathering for worship. Now it's interesting, in the New Testament, the word for church is ecclesia, which means gathering. Or assembly. We are continuing the tradition of the Old Testament as the people of God gather to worship this same God. And the question is, so so what is what is church? Church is the gathering of God's people. And I want you to see this if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter twelve. I want you to see why this why this assembly is important. Hebrews chapter twelve. Here's what he says. I'm going to start in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 18. If you are in one of our pew miles on page 853, if you're struggling to get there, 853. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, 
to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Do you know what he's talking about here? He's, he's looking back at the way that God speaks to his people in the Old Testament. Right? You don't come to this mountain that can be touched, and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that... the that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terribly, so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you, and he's talking to the New Testament church here, so that means he's talking to you and to me as well. But you have come to Mount Zion. You haven't come to a physical mountain. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want you to get this this morning. You don't come to a physical mountain like they did in the Old Testament. You don't come to the mountain that is trembling. You come to an even greater mountain. You come to the mountain of Zion, the heavenly mountain, and you join with the angels as you sing and worship. You join with the heavenlies as we worship this God. This is, this is how we worship today. We are part of this New Testament church, and I, and I think this, and, and I think we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to miss this. We come in casually, and it's, it's what we do on Sunday, and, and it doesn't even cross our minds how amazing what is happening is. That when we come and we worship, when we sing these songs and when we open up the Word of God, that we, we don't do so in, in just this single place. We don't do so just as this one house of God. We do so, and we join the heavenlies, and we join the angels, and we join the saints who are saying, praise be to this God. And this is, this is the most profound thing that we will do all week, is come to this room and to, to worship. This is the most profound thing that we'll do all week, as we gather to behold the glory of God. And I just want to just remind us this week that our greatest need as a a church, as individuals, as as the world, is to kind of rediscover this heart of worship. To rediscover what it means to come and to, to worship And this is where Psalm 95 comes in. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 95. Again, this is one of my favorite songs, so I'm a little partial. But I want to just, I want to read this. This psalm has been used as a call to worship by God's people for a long time. And so I I just want want to read this. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands 
formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would only hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my way. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. There's obviously two sides to this psalm, <laughs> right? There's obviously two halves of this, and I think they kind of go together, though. The first half of this psalm is really depicting kind of the, the wonder of our worship, if you will. Just understanding who this is that we worship. But I think the second half really speaks to, to kind of the weight of our worship. Why do we do what we do? What, and, and so I want to I do two things as we look through this psalm. I want to just remember this morning who we worship. And I want to remember how we worship. I want to remember who and I want to remember how. And I want to start with, with who. Because I think even as we worship, we are tempted to forget who we worship. I mean, maybe it's just me, but sometimes when you pray... It's a matter of like four or five seconds and your mind starts to wonder. Is that just me? All right, we say, all right, let's pray. And then we start to pray and then I close my eyes and I'm, I'm praying and it feels like with half my brain I'm praying but with the other half I'm kind of over here thinking about all these things I need to do today and, and maybe that's just me. But what am, what am I doing in that instance? I, I'm, I'm kind of forgetting who I'm talking to. You know, you can almost imagine. We, we, we just read about how, how we don't go to this physical mountain. We join in with the angels and the heavenlies. You can almost imagine the, heavenly, the heavenlies going, don't you realize who you're praying to? Don't you realize that, that this, is, this is a special thing? And don't you realize that, that he's listening I mean, yeah, sure, he's, he's holding the universe in his hand, but he is paying attention to you. And so, so who are you, why are you getting distracted? Why are we, why are we just forgetting who, we are, who we're praying to? And why, why are we letting our minds wander? I think it's because we forget unintentionally who we're praying to. And I think that's probably the best option out of that because the other options is that we don't care who we're praying to. Or that we don't respect who we're praying to. I hope it's just that we're forgetting who we're praying to. And Psalm 95 is just here to, to lift our eyes in worship and to focus us on, on who it is that we worship. And so let's just go through here. What does this psalm say about this God that we worship? Well, it says that he, even in verse 1, come let us sing for joy to the Lord. If you'll notice in your Bible, Hopefully you have your Bibles this morning. If you notice in your Bible, the word Lord is in all capital letters. There's a reason for that. This, this word Lord in all capital letters is, is, is basically saying this is the Hebrew word for God. It's Yahweh. And this is the name that, that God gave himself. It represents the name that God gave himself in Exodus chapter 3 when he says, I am the I am. 
that this is, this is representing who God is, that he will always be and he always has been and, and he always will be in the future. That God didn't have a beginning, he's not going to have an end, he is not a created being. It's that question that, that I get asked sometimes by my son Hayden or by some kids. It's, who made God? No one. No one made God. God always has been, God always will be. This is, the, this is who this God is. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. It seems like just, a, just an introductory line there, but that's, that, that word has meaning there. Let us sing for joy to this God who has always been and will always be. Let us sing for joy to this eternal God. He is a self-existent God of all. Right? No one made God. He is also the supreme king above all. You get to verse 3. For the Lord is the great God. He is the king above all gods. Right? He is the capital K king. All the rulers of the world are under him. He rules over all the rulers and all the authorities. This is the God that we worship. He's the creator of the universe. In verse 4, in his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and the hands formed the dry land. I want you to understand this morning that we come and we worship a God who is holding the universe in his hands. He created this universe. He is the, the creator of the universe. It's like that old song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Right? It's not just a song. This is truth. He's got the whole world in his hands. He formed it. He created it. He is the, the creator of the universe. Our, our world is hand-shaped and hand-held by this holy God that we worship. He's the creator of the universe, but he's also the owner of the universe. Right, I love the, that he that this psalmist writes this for in his hand of depths and the mountain peaks they belong to him and the sea it's his because he made it. Right, he's he's not just the <clears throat> excuse me he's not just the creator of the universe he is he's the owner of the universe. Right, we we think that we own land, God owns land. We think that we own stuff, God owns everything. He's the creator. He's the owner of the universe. He's our maker. Verse 6, come let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. That not only does this God that we worship create and sustain the universe, he created and he sustains you. That he is what causes the heart, your heart to beat. He is what causes your lungs to inflate. And if he were to stop, so would you. This God that we worship is is your maker. And this God that we worship is our shepherd, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. That this God is protecting us, he's providing for us, he cares for us. I mean, this is the God that we worship. When we come into this building and we we, we sit here for an hour and we, we lift our voices in worship, it's not just to not just because we like singing. It's because we have a God who is worthy of this praise. When we come and we open up this word, it's not just because I like to hear myself talk and you like to hear me talk as well. It's because we come and we hear from the living word of God. This creator, maker, sustainer, shepherd God. I mean, and here's the real question. How is this even possible? I mean, we, me and you, like we're... 
We're sinners. We don't deserve to be able to even worship this God. How is this even possible? I mean, we rebelled. How can we be sheep in this God's flock? It doesn't make sense until you go back to verse 1 again. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. That God is the rock of our salvation. He saves us. He delivers us. I mean, this is a picture again from from Exodus as he pulls his people out. He he is the, the savior of those people. And and I know we're not saved from a, from a literal slavery, but, but man, we've got a figurative slavery on our hearts. We're, we're slaves to sin, Scripture tells us, and we, have, we can be pulled out of that by this rock of our salvation. And he saved us for a purpose that we, that we might worship. That we might worship. I mean, here's the, the coolest part of this God that, that we worship is that this God came to us. We didn't need to go to him. God came down to us. I mean, we in the New Testament read about Jesus, and Jesus is introduced to us in the book of John as God in the flesh. In John chapter 8, Jesus calls himself the I am, that he, he is this self-existent God, right? In Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, it says that on his robes is written the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Colossians 1.16, he's called the creator. Jesus is called the creator. In 1.17, he's called the maker. In John 10.11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And all of the gospels point to Jesus as the rock of our salvation. I mean, Jesus, you can see clearly Jesus in this psalm. That Jesus is, is this God. We should remember who we worship. We worship a creator, sustainer, a maker, a shepherd, the king of kings, the lord of lords. I could go on and on and on and on all day, every day. This is the God that we worship. This is, this is why we come. I think we need to remember when we come to this place, when we come to worship, who it is that we worship. There's also a lot in this psalm about how we worship. I think we need to realize sometimes how we worship. There are five times in this psalm that it says, let us. You can even underline those if you want. Let us sing, let us shout, let us come before him with thanksgiving, let us bow down, let us kneel. But how many notice he's not saying let me or let them. It's let us. Let us, it's said a lot uh, that worship is not a spectator sport. I've heard that said in a lot of different places. But man, we make it easy to get into that mindset, don't we? I mean, even just look at how the sanctuary is set up right now. I'm standing on a platform with a microphone, and you're sitting there in pews looking at me. When we worship, there are people up here with instruments and microphones and the congregation sits in the pews. And it's easy to get in this mindset of, of they are worshiping. We spectate the worship. We watch worship happen in front of us. But, but worship is not a, a spectator sport. Worship is for all of us. Worship is, is with all of us. Amen. Right, and and it's, it, you are not the audience. God is the audience. When we worship, we, we sing together to an audience of one. When I open up the word, we, we talk together hearing from this one God. 
right, this, is, this, is, this is how we worship, and God is the audience. And when we come together, there's a lot of things in the psalm that it says. When we come together, we sing. Right? Let us sing is the, the very first one in, in verse 1. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. We come and we sing. We, I think music and song is kind of a natural expression for people to be able to, to understand this is we're singing praise to this God. So then the second one in verse 2, how we worship, we shout. That's a little less common, I think, in, in, especially in this denomination. <laughs> but we, it's okay to shout in church. Uh, that God, you are holy. God, I am in awe of you. There is no one like you. I come to you and I, I worship you. And it's okay if you want to shout in church. It's okay to be loud in church. It's okay to clap your hands and be loud. And man, this is, we shout for joy. And, it, and it's, here's the thing. People, when they shout sometimes, are just afraid that people are going to look at them and be like, what's wrong with this guy? But it's not about that. Because we're not singing for each other. And we're not shouting at each other. We're shouting to a holy God. So when someone shouts in worship, the, the, the look isn't like a sideways glance of, come on now. The look is a, man, thank God. Praise God. Praise God. We shout. Verse 6 says we bow down. The Hebrew for worship is really the, the word for, for falling prostrate, getting down on our knees and down on our faces before God. And really, this is the reason that we have altars in the front. So that as an act of worship, you can come and you can, you can kneel before the Lord, your God, your maker. It doesn't need to be at one of these altars. You can do it in your seat. You can do it in the aisle. You can do it wherever. But, but if, as, as an act of worship, if you feel compelled to kneel, then, then man, kneel. This is, this is how we worship. We kneel. Verse 2 says we thank him. We give thanks to God. All right, verse 7 says that we're, well, verse 7 warns us that we need to listen. All right, we talk about being, being sheep and flock under his care, but the second half of verse 7 today, if you would only hear his voice. And we need to, when we come and we worship, we need to, to listen. We're sheep. We need to hear his voice. And, and worship involves hearing the word of God. And this is, that's why this, what we're doing right now, is such an important part of worship. Because this is hearing the word of God. We are, we are here actively listening to the word of God. And, and we do that. And it's important to, to have this book with you as we go so you can see the word of God and, and read the word of God and know the word of God. All right, we listen, but Verse 7 through 11, I think, is, is kind of a warning for another part of our worship, and that's we need to obey. We need to obey the word of God. I just want to read this, these passages again, 7 through 11. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your heart as you did at Meribah, as you did on that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. What do we have? We have a, we have a people here. I mean, this is, this is how this psalm ends. It's a warning of God's wrath for those people who claim to worship God but ignore the word of God. 
I mean, Meribah. Meribah is, is, if you want to read that story, it's in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. I'm not going to go back and do that, but you remember as the people of God are coming out of Israel, they're they are hungry and they're thirsty and they're complaining and they're saying, where is this God who brought us out of here? And they're, they want some water. And so Moses asks God, what should I do? And so God says, strike the rock. So Moses strikes the rock and water comes out and, and this is where Meribah is. And actually, you know what, I will go back and read that. Exodus chapter 17. Starting at verse, uh, we'll start at verse 4, because I already kind of explained that story. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Oreb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord, not, is the Lord among us or not? Now, it's these folks who have, who have just seen everything that God has done. They've seen God bring them out of Egypt. They've seen the sea part. They've seen the Egyptian army be overwhelmed by the waves. They've seen all of this happen, and they're in the wilderness, and they have the gall to ask God, are you with us or not? I mean, yeah, you can understand what he's saying here. I don't harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at the day of Mass in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. Verse 10, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. They were, they were basically what happens is that we have a whole generation of people who wandered until they died because they hardened their hearts. We have a, we have a whole generation of people who, who hardened their hearts, who worshipped this God, who brought them out of Egypt and who brought them out of everything, but who, who didn't trust his word. We read it in, in, in Numbers 14. It says, not one of those who saw the signs but disobeyed entered, entered the promised land. Not one. I mean, think about that. Hebrews chapter 3 actually talks about this. If you go to Hebrews chapter 3 with me. Hebrews chapter 3 starting at verse 7. Actually, 3, three 4, and 5 kind of talk about this story, right? And they talk about this psalm specifically. Chapter 3 starting at verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways, so I decided an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Does that sound familiar? That's Psalm 95 right there. So verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily. As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it has just been said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He, he continues going here in chapter 4. And, but we can, we can come 
to church every single weekend. We can be here every week. We can, we can worship. But, but if we harden our hearts to the word of God, we miss the point completely. That this is, this is not worship. If we just come and we go through the motions and, and we sing a song because it's our favorite and then we don't do anything with it. We go home and we harden our hearts to the word of God that is calling us to a certain way of life, then, then we miss the point. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is pretty clear. He says, these people, in verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it's this next verse that gets me every time. They worship me in vain. I want you to just hear that again. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. They worship me in vain. I want you to realize that's a, this is a sin that is pretty unique to us as Christians. That we are the ones who can come and we are the ones who can honor God with our lips but not our hearts. This is a sin that is unique to us. I don't know about you, but I, mean, I don't want to worship in vain anymore. I'm done worshiping in vain. When I come to worship, I, I, wanna, I, I want to be reminded of who God is in worship. And as I worship to this, this God, this creator, sustainer, maker, God, that, that, that man, that, this changes everything. It changes how we worship. It changes how we live. And when we, when, when we worship, I just, I hope that we're always reminded of who this God is and why we worship Probably the best part of this psalm is at the end. Because the negative is also true. So I decided to note in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. These people who, who walked away from God, who saw God do all of this stuff, who, who honored God with their lips but did not obey the commands of God, these people would never enter the rest of God. But I, the opposite is also true. That if we would, would worship fully with our hearts and obey the teaching and obey the word of God, that we will find rest. We will find rest in Christ. We will find rest in God. And this is, this is the promise of restoration that we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks. This rest can be yours and it can be mine. We can be assur assured of this rest if we worship with our hearts, with our minds, if we remember who we worship when we come in. We come and we worship the creator, the sustainer, the maker, the, the, the creator of the universe. He sustains it. He holds the universe in his hand. He made you and he knows the amount of hairs on your head. That's another song we might talk about. Right? He, he knows you in a very intimate way. This same God, we worship that God. May we obey his word as well as an act of worship. Let's pray. God, we love you. We give you praise. We give you thanks. God, you deserve all praise. Sometimes it's hard to put into words how much you mean to us. It's hard to put into words all that you have done with us and all that you are. And so, 
God, I just I pray that as we as we as we worship this morning, as we go home, as we we have our personal worship times, we read our Bible, and maybe maybe we find ourselves singing in praise to you. May we find ourselves shouting out a song of praise to you. May we find ourselves on our knees and on our face in prayer to you. May we find ourselves worshiping you and, and really truly focusing on who you are. And God, may that focus drive us to obey your word as well. God, we love you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.